0: And again he entered into Capernaum after some days and it was noised that he was in the house and straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive him no not so much as about the door and when he preached the and he preached the word unto them and they come unto him bringing one of, sick of the palsy which was born afore and when they could not come nigh unto him for the press They uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, Thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there, and reasoning in their hearts, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned within, so, so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise, and take up thy bed, and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thy house." And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. How does a war begin? How do we define the beginning of a conflict? It's a rather tricky question. After all, we could say that World War II began with the invasion of Poland from Germany. But for those of you who are scholars of history, you will recognize that the seeds of that conflict were sown in the armistice that ended World War I, which broke out from unresolved issues stemming from the Franco-Prussian War, which resulted from the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, which arose from an Anglo-French conflict that stretched all the way back to 1066. And eventually if we were honest, we could probably trace every human conflict all the way back to the face-off between humanity and the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. But Mark has to begin the record of the conflict in Jesus' life at some point. But he does not uh, focus on the unseen battle between Jesus and Satan hinted at from the first chapter and probably extending throughout the entirety of Jesus' earthly ministry. Rather. He will describe the ongoing friction between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And that conflict begins in this passage and will govern the stories that Mark tells until chapter 3. The beginning of the conflict appears in a very strange story. We still find something endearing to the persistent faith of the friends of this paralyzed man. For Mark's original audience, I submit that they may have seem less endeared uh, and more in awe at the power that this story describes than we do. In this story, I will have to engage in some speculation, but I will give you an alert when we get to that point. As we consider this passage, I says, suggest we look at or look for roof-breaking faith, ground-breaking forgiveness, and mind-breaking force. Roof-breaking faith faith, groundbreaking forgiveness, and mind-breaking force. Mark seems to gloss over what I think is one of the more intriguing questions about this story. He sets the stage by describing the problem that this group of friends faces and the solution that they develop. Mark draws our attention back to Capernaum here in verse 1, and again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. Some time has passed. Mark notes this to indicate that the ardor of the fame generated by the former leper has died away in some sense. Our own experience with fame reminds us how fleeting it can be. Another reason why we ought to see the healed leper's course of action as neither wise nor wholly beneficial. Jesus seems to feel that he is able to return to the first city of his ministry. And while the fame may have abated, the interest in this healer-teacher remains high. The report runs through the city that he is, as Mark writes, in a house. That is how the Greek reads, and some translations have interpreted it to read, at home. But where was Jesus' home? Does this refer to Peter's house that he stayed at back in chapter 1? Or has Jesus, as the eldest son of his household, moved his mother and his family from Nazareth to Capernaum? And neither of these ideas would violate his assertions that he had no place to lay his head. Perhaps it was another house altogether. This fascinating question about what house this is uh, leads to speculations that uh, have some impact on how we read this story, but such speculations will have to wait. For a crowd appears at the door and poses a general problem. In verse two, and straightway, many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. We find our familiar friend immediately in this verse. Immediately, everyone flocks to the house. Whatever, whoever's house this is, it cannot accommodate all the visitors that come to it. The house is full. The door is blocked as they crowd around it, craning to hear Jesus speak. They are not here to see a healing. They are here to hear a word. This is... The interesting way that Mark describes Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he is speaking the word to them. The word being the message of the gospel. The problem of hearing Jesus troubles the next group of actors that Mark introduces. They are even more inconvenienced, for they are not come just to hear. Verse 3. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. Mark gives us a new and curious image. We see a pallet with an incapacitated man lying thereon, carried by four other men, presumably one at each corner. We don't know the exact nature of this illness, but Mark especially notes this man's inability to walk. We see someone so helpless that... Four, presumably, friends have to transport him to Jesus. And only one purpose could drive such an action. They believe that Jesus can heal their paralytic friend. But as they approach the house, they see the crowds. The crowds who are fighting just to hear. They're not jostling to get closer. They just want to hear what Jesus is saying. So if that is the cause for the press, how can they, who want to get through this whole group that is earnestly trying to hear, possibly enter into the house, much less fight their way through to Jesus? How will they get their friend to the help he so desperately needs? Shall they just give up, turn back, and try to return another day? Nope. Time will not wait, and they determined to resolve the problem immediately. In verse 4, when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Now, to understand this, we must remember that uh, roofs in the first century in this area of Galilee were not like... Uh, our roofs, they—they they weren't pitched; they were flat. They were places where people could go and escape the close air of the house itself. They could go up and enjoy the breeze. There was access to the roof. So, uh, these uh, this group of men look and say, "All right, well, we have an idea." Up on the roof, they go and they begin to dig. They begin to dig because roofs of that day were constructed of rafters that were covered with reeds, and then those reeds covered with clay. They uncover the roof. The language Mark uses is they unroof the roof. They dig up a hole. You can imagine what it would require to uh, make a hole big enough so that their friend can go down between the rafters and be set before Jesus. Now some commentators, I found this very amusing, the commentators are all bothered at how Jesus could continue preaching while the din of these men doing their work on on the roof was going on. Obviously they have never visited this church, and heard the sirens go by, and the cars go by, and the train go by, and we just keep on preaching. And that's how I understand this, that Jesus continues preaching because the people are so desperate to hear that they're willing uh, to listen as whatever is going on on the roof goes on. And Jesus would probably continue preaching until uh, he had to stop because uh, the gap in the roof had just let down in front of him a man on a pallet. Now remember when we considered whose house this was, and Mark doesn't say anything about what we would consider to be criminal damage to another person's property. How would you feel if suddenly someone decided to go up in your house, tear up the shingles, tear, tear open uh, take up the the, the particle board, And then make a hole in your ceiling between the rafters. Because that is pretty much what has happened here. We would probably not take kindly to this kind of criminal damage. But Mark doesn't mention it, nor does he mention whose house just got vandalized. This could be Peter's house. This could be Jesus' house himself. Now someone's going to have to repair their roof. But despite this damage and whoever's house this is, what does Jesus see when he looks into the hole that has been put into a roof? Look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he sees faith. He sees men who believed so strongly in his ability and his condescension to heal that they committed a trespass that most would consider unpardonable. Now, I'm, of course, not suggesting that we go around breaking up roofs or in any other way causing damage to property, but I'm asking that we consider what Jesus saw, how strong their faith was. And to Mark's Gentile Roman readers, they probably saw it too. They saw a group of friends and a man who prob- who demonstrate a faith so powerful in the Savior, in Jesus, that they are willing to go to such great lengths. And these men believed that Jesus had the power to heal. Perhaps they had heard the story about what Jesus had done for the leper. Perhaps they had heard the leper's own confession that when he came to Jesus, he said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. These men believed in Jesus's power, but they had no guarantee of his willingness to heal. All they had was faith and hope. And when we reflect upon it, we live in that same condition. We believe that Jesus is able to do all things. We believe in an almighty God and a sovereign providence. But do we have any guarantee that he will do what we ask of him? For most of our requests, we can't root in any uh, basic promise of God. And so our prayer life must exhibit both faith and hope lest we retreat into the kind of safe prayer requests. But Jesus, as he instructs his disciples on prayer, doesn't instruct them to pray safely. He instructs them to pray boldly. Are we bold enough, determined enough? Do we have a roof-breaking faith enough to ask the Lord for what seems impossible, but what we believe and know That he can do. We see a roof breaking faith, but secondly, I want us to see a ground breaking forgiveness. As we continue, we face another instance where uh, we must ask a speculative question as to what this helpless one thought when he heard Jesus' statement. But thanks to Mark, we need no such speculation when we wonder what the haughty members of the group thought. Jesus' response to the faith of these five men surprises us. Verse 5, When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto them, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Jesus turns to this man who is helpless on this pallet and says, With endearment, Son, Your sins are forgiven. This isn't a declaration of reality. This is an authoritative statement by Jesus regarding this man's sin. But this isn't why these men went through all of this work. This isn't why they brought this man to the healer. They didn't uncover the roof to hear the pardon of sin for their friend. And this statement probably shocks them. Maybe it shocked the paralytic. So why did Jesus make this statement? The commentator R.T. France poses three possibilities that logically arise. First, that Jesus knew that a particular sin had caused this man to end up in this condition. Secondly, that even though no particular sin had caused this state, this man or his friends had assumed it did. Thirdly, that Jesus says this in order to initiate this conflict with the scribes and to assert his authority to forgive sins. For my part, I think the personal tone of Jesus' words makes the third rather unlikely. Between the first two, I find it most likely that whatever the true state or the true origin of this malady this man probably had in mind a sin or sins that had brought them to this state. Or even if he didn't think that, perhaps he saw himself as unworthy to be healed by Jesus because of his sin. Whatever the case, I would suggest to us that Jesus' words seemed directed at this man's spiritual state that this was a balm to heal his guilt-ridden soul. Of course, some of the scribes respond with instant hostility in verse 6, but there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Mark tells us that not all the scribes respond with hostility, but some of them do. Perhaps it was the Orthodox that instantly had a problem with Jesus' words. They hear blasphemy, for they know the truth of the matter. They know correctly that the only one who can forgive sin is God. And they see a mere rabbi, a teacher, who has now arrogated to himself to speak words which only the Lord God can speak. And he is so arrogant that he does not even use the prophetic formula, thus saith the Lord. Now, following the story of the leper and the importance we saw in that story of returning the leper to worship, we see again the centrality of the spiritual state of people over their physical maladies. The spiritual state of people is more important than what made them sick. The leper needed restoration to the place of worship more than the removal of his leprosy. The paralytic needed forgiveness of sins more than he needed the ability to walk. A leper right with God and able to worship is better than a healed person separated from God. A a forgiven paralytic is better than an able-bodied, unforgiven man. We often assume, I think wrongly, that we have matured beyond the pride of the scribes. For I believe their arrogance hid a stony heart of unforgiveness. We see it on our own day. We claim that only God can forgive sins to hide our own refusal to forgive those who have sinned against us. We mask our bitterness against those who have hurt us even though they have repented. And we excuse our hostility to those who have yet to repent by the fact that we don't have to forgive them. But how can such an attitude belong to those who bear the name of the one who said, Love your enemies? I wonder what age demographic determined which scribes got upset and those that didn't. For I think perhaps it was the elder among the scribes who heard Jesus' words with compassion. Those who had some years and who had some sin scars, I could be wrong, but those who appreciate their own need of forgiveness often revel in the forgiveness extended toward others. The scars of sin remind us of the Lord's extreme grace to us and the hope for others. As the balm that has healed our wounds is applied to others, we celebrate when it closes the gash in another's injured soul. We see a roof-breaking faith, and ground-breaking forgiveness, and I want us to close by looking at a mind-blowing force. The story closes by pointing us to the power of the Savior to forgive, proven in the power to heal. We hear Jesus asking a forceful question and issuing a forceful command. Jesus immediately responds to the the hearts accusing him of blasphemy. In verse 8, and immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said to them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Again, our friend immediately shows up. Get used to it, we'll see a dolphin. Mark notes Jesus' divine power, knowing the unspoken hard attitude in those who are defaming him in their hearts. And he surprises them by accurately revealing what is going on in their inmost thoughts. He asked them what seems on the outside to be rather a simple question, but it actually is quite complex. Whether it is easier to say unto the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk. Which is easier, Jesus says to the scribes who are accusing him of blasphemy, which is easier for you to say, your sins are forgiven you, or arise, take up your bed and walk which is the easier statement. To understand, to answer the question, we must understand uh, two planes upon which this question operates. Humanly speaking, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven, because there's no evidentiary uh, proof that you spoke wrongly. How could anyone tell? What evidence to the contrary could be advanced against this statement? Remember the test of the prophet that we read of in Deuteronomy 18.22. When the prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken, but the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid of him. If a prophet says, Arise, take up your bed, and walk, and the man doesn't, that prophet has just put his life on the line. He has just revealed himself to be a false prophet. And so, humanly speaking, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven you because you can get away with it. But spiritually speaking, we know that it is harder to say your sins are forgiven you. It is harder to forgive sins than to heal a man. Although, critically, you could anchor all uh, healing in the cross work of Jesus Christ. And I could here an argument for the equality of the two healing acts, but the logic of sets and subsets suggests that the set of forgiveness of sins of which the healing of this man is a subset proves the difficulty of the forgiveness of sins. It is not necessary, if you think about it, in God's power to to anchor the cross work in healing. But to the human audience, Jesus asked this question because he wants them first to think about it on the human scale because that's how he's going to use it in a a second. But he's also saying it because he's going to prove that he is going to do the more difficult in reality. Jesus will use the lesser power to prove the greater he's going to use the lesser power of healing this man to prove his greater power of bringing forgiveness of sins. Because the lesser power has more evidentiary conviction to those who will be witnessing it. And so Jesus issues the command, verse 10, "...but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sin, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed." and go thy way into thy house." In this passage, Mark for the first time records Jesus' favorite name for himself, the Son of Man. And probably for the first time I really got to grips with why he probably does so. The phrase the Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. It's a kind of tucked back in the corner designation for the Messiah. It's not one of the more popular messianic names, and so Jesus chooses it. In all likelihood, he chooses it because it was not; it had not at that time gotten so tangled with political messianic expectations and hopes. In short, he uses it as a title to assert his messianic identity separate from the titles that were used of revolutionaries against Roman rule. Many revolutionaries at that time were cropping up, claiming to be the the Messiah, using messianic titles to advocate violent overthrow of Roman rule over Israel. And so Jesus doesn't choose any of the titles that were popular at the time. He chooses this one tucked behind that clearly has messianic implications. It wasn't one that people were using all the time, and he chooses that one to assert his divinity. To a Gentile Roman audience, we can see this, the import of this title. For Jesus is not setting himself as a competitor to Rome, but a divine healer and forgiver of sin. To the command of the God-man, no weakness may withstand his almighty power, as we see in verse 12, and immediately... He arose, took up his bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Again, we find our favorite friend immediately, three times in this passage, to keep the pace going, to show the immediate power that God has, that Jesus has. Mark inserts the phrase here, after the healing, that he does it before all. To emphasize the evidentiary importance of this healing, this was set up set as evidence to prove that Jesus, yes, could forgive sins. After all, would God bless a man who had committed such blasphemy as to assert that he could forgive sins, and who had blatantly stated that his ability to forgive sins forgive sins was borne witnessed by the work of healing, would God bless such a one to enable him to heal in this way? This was not a mere healing of a paralytic, but blatant evidence that Jesus heals and forgives sin as the divine Messiah. It is no wonder that such a thing amazed people. It is no wonder that they said, we never saw anything Like this before. My friend, Mark tells this story to prove an important point that Jesus brings forgiveness of sins to those who believe. That's the entire story. Jesus forgives the sins of those who believe in him. And the picture of the paralytic portrays the truth about us. His incapacity speaks to our own. He cannot save himself. He cannot eliminate his own sin. He cannot avoid the condemnation he faces. He cannot do anything to avoid God's wrath and to free himself from the bondage of evil. And the same is true for us. Yet what we could not do, Jesus did for us. He is God-made man. He lived a life proving his power and his innocence. He died condemned on the cross, not for his sin, but for the sins of all who believe on him. He rose from the dead, proving again his power to forgive sin. Today he stands presented before you in the gospel. And what will you say of him? Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you Will you call upon him to forgive your sin and turn from that sin and follow him? Christian, what do we long to hear from God? Do we pray to hear and desire to hear most of all, take up your bed and walk? Do, is what we want most an ease of, to the burden and misery of living in a broken world? Or do we want most to hear your sins are forgiven? Now, we're good Christian people. We know what the right answer is supposed to be. But often if we look into our own hearts, that's not where that question is accurately stated. We stare in horror at the state of our own hearts and see that we have used Christianity because we want an easier life, rather than wanting God above all else we follow Christ because we think we get all of his benefits rather than recognizing that forgiveness of sins is one of is the greatest benefit that enables us to draw close to the heavenly father but the glorious message of the gospel for us is that Jesus doesn't present the paralytic or us, with an either-or, but a both-and. We have that promise recorded in Romans, He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Jesus didn't say to the paralytic, Do you want your sins forgiven, or do you want to be healed? The paralytic came to be healed, but he got something so much better he got so much something so much better and then he got what he came for god's grace heals the brokenness of our sin scarred lives what then is our duty in light of this glorious truth jesus again answers us having spoken of the grace of god he told his disciples in matthew chapter 6 seek ye first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. If God gives us, through Christ, forgiveness of sins and every other good thing, then how do we respond? What is our goal? What is our uh, default way of engaging in life but to seek the kingdom? We labor in the kingdom for the kingdom. We labor as those who God has brought into his kingdom, and we labor for it. And that labor takes on every form imaginal. We serve God, not for worldly wealth, but for the Lord. This is not to denigrate either wealth or poverty, for both serve the kingdom. What is it that God has called you to do, to be, to serve, to worship, to show forth his glory, to bear witness that the Son of Man is able to forgive sins? Let's pray together. Our Father, devote us to the service of your Son. May you always take first place in our hearts. Remove bitterness and unforgiveness from our hearts. Increase our faith and hope. Ground it in your powerful gospel of Jesus. In whose name we pray all these things. Amen.